Acts chapter 10, that's where we are. The last time I spoke, as far as I can remember, I spoke on uh, what God was doing in the life of the apostle Peter, a work of transformation. Peter is a Jew, and we know from reading the scripture that the Jews did not associate with the Gentiles. They saw them as unclean. But the message of the gospel had come through Jesus Christ to all people, to all nations, to every ethnicity. Um, But this was a challenge at the time because of the relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles. So God has to transition Peter and do a work in his heart to get him to the place where he can minister to the Gentiles. And he he does this towards the end of chapter 9 by first of all leading Peter into territory that was predominantly um, occupied by Gentiles. And we see Peter there um, performing a, a miracle by the hand of God and also raising up someone who had died from from death back to life. So, and then the the further thing is, is that Peter then then lives for a while, a substantial while, with Simon the Tanner, who was probably regarded to be the most unclean man that lived in Joppa, because he dealt with carcasses, you know, dead animals. So God is transitioning Peter from a place of where he thinks, well, you know, me and my people, you know, um, we're okay. You know, we don't like those other people. You know, we regard them as unclean. We don't have any association with them. But God is transitioning Peter to a place to say, look, I want you to take this message to the Gentiles, those who you regard as unclean. And God does this in such a gentle way. He does it in a gentle way. And I haven't got time to go over this sermon. I'm, I'm finding myself going back over what I shared last time. If you want to hear that, you've got to go back on, on YouTube and, and pick that up. So I'm going to move straight into this. Okay, so I'm going to be reading through, again, the passage. And then as God enlightens me, I just want to expand on some points. Which, let me say, these points are simple you know, as I was thinking through some of this, I was thinking, well, God, everybody knows this already. <laughs> you know, but, uh, when God lays something on your heart, you still have to share it. Amen? Yeah, because God has something to speak to us in this moment, even though we may already know it. You know, but he will use this opportunity to remind us of some things or maybe clarify some things in our hearts and our minds. So, Let's look at Acts chapter 10, verse 1. And it says that there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment. A devout man, one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. Amen. So here we are introduced to a man whose name is Cornelius. The scripture tells us that he is a centurion in the Italian band, which probably means he was in charge of some special forces. These weren't just uh, ordinary um, military personnel. These are probably special forces. And Cornelius here is a Roman commander. And we don't know how many men he was in charge of, but there was probably more than a hundred, although the term centurion comes from the word 100. But there's evidence in the scripture that there's probably more than a hundred men he was in charge of. And these men, I said, these are special forces. So these guys are tough. You know, you could regard them like the SAS. These are the special, they've been specially trained. They, 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 They go out on special duties, you know, and probably perform high-risk operations and so on. And then the scripture gives us in verse 2 some insights into the character of Cornelius. Remember, he's a Gentile. 
He's a Roman commander. He's in charge of these tough SAS guys. Look at his character. It says in verse 2 that he was a devout man. It says that he feared God. He was a God-fearer. He prayed to God and he gave alms to the Jews. And this term, God-fearer, we see it again in Acts 10.22 and other parts of the book of Acts. But what it, a God-fearer is a Gentile, so it's a non-Jew, a Gentile that feared the one true God but had not converted to Judaism. So that's what Cornelius was. He was a Gentile, but he feared the one true God, where I suppose the prevailing uh, sort of religions in his time would be multiple God worship. But he feared one true God, but he had not converted to Judaism. And note here that even though he feared God, he prayed He gave alms to the Jews. He was not saved. Did you get that point? He was a devout man. He feared God. He gave alms to the Jews. And he prayed to God. But he was not saved. And how do we know that? Because in uh, Acts 11... The end of verse 13 and 14, it says this, Send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. And this is Peter giving his account to the, the head of the church in Jerusalem. So although he was a devout man and he was doing all the right things, he wasn't saved. So we see here a picture of a religious man who's doing lots of, of, of good things, but he's not saved. And this is saying to us that we are not saved by the good works that we do. And this is, this is a, I mean, all of us would say this is a good man, wouldn't we? We wouldn't say this is a bad man. I mean, Cornelius is a good man. He's doing lots of, of good things, but yet he needs to be saved. He needs to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is his only Lord and Savior and that he can only be saved by grace. He can't be saved by his works, even by his prayers, by his giving of alms, by being devout. He's not saved by that. And the scripture tells us that we're not saved by works, lest any of us should boast was saved by grace alone in Jesus Christ. And so on the cross, John 19, Jesus said, It is finished to tell us that. That means that we cannot add anything to our saving, to our salvation. Jesus completed the work on the cross. Amen. So we see here that Cornelius is being faithful to the light that he has, just like Saul was, Saul of Tarsus. He was faithful to the light that he had before his conversion, but he was totally wrong, wasn't he? Persecuting the Christians. So Cornelius is not doing that. He's not persecuting anybody, but still he's doing lots of good, but he's not saved. And I want to say that Wherever or whenever someone is seeking God and they have a measure of light, God is always faithful to bring more light. Amen? Whenever someone is truly seeking God and they're probably living in just partial light, they have a partial understanding, where there's sincerity of heart, God is always faithful to bring more light. And in fact, a good friend of mine, Pal Singh, who he converted from Sikhism to Christianity, he shared with me one time to say that, you know, when we are even witnessing or evangelizing to people, he said, never blow out the light that they have. He said, share light and allow them to walk from their darkness 
into more light and then they will find out I don't need this anymore. So God will bring light to those who are sincerely seeking light. And I, I believe that today, perhaps in here, or maybe watching online, there is somebody who has a measure of light and is seeking more light. And my prayer and our prayer for you today is that God will bring that greater light into your life this very day. Can we say amen to that church? Amen. Amen. So, verse 3 says, About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision, and this is speaking of Peter, an angel of God, sorry, this is Cornelius. Let me go back, rewind. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? So he said to him, your prayers and your arms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon a tanner, whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. So when he had explained all things to them, he sent them to Joppa. Amen. So this devout man who's praying and uh, giving alms to the Jews, who fears God, the scripture tells us the ninth hour one day that an angel appears to him in a vision. I want us to note here that uh, angels are not cute, furry, fluffy, shiny little creatures that we hang on Christmas trees. Have you noticed that any time an angel appears to someone in the Bible that they're afraid? And let's bear in mind here who this man is. He's in charge of the SAS. So he's a pretty... Tough, mean guy, I would say. He's, he's not, there's not no scaredy cat. But this angel appears to him, and this guy is afraid. He's struck with fear. The other thing I find interesting about this appearance of this angel, because God wants the message of the gospel to reach the Gentile world, and he would take time to send an angel down to this man who's seeking more of him. But I notice that God doesn't use the angel to deliver the message of the gospel. Can you see that in the scripture? God wants us to proclaim the gospel to those who are lost. He doesn't use angels to bring that message. He, we are the ones who are commissioned to preach the message of the gospel. So even though an angel appears to Cornelius, he gives him the instructions, but he doesn't actually give him the message of the gospel. And what we see here is that Cornelius brings forth immediate obedience. You know, he's one that gives commands, and those who are under him follow. And so as he receives the command from the angel, he follows immediately. And he sends people to go and meet Peter in Joppa. So back in Joppa, while God now is dealing with Cornelius and this vision, God is also simultaneously speaking or about to speak to Peter. And God's about to blow his mind with a fresh vision. So let's read that portion and see what the scripture says there from verse 9. It says, The next day as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. That's about noon. Then he became very hungry 
and wanted to eat. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven opened and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners, descending to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And the voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have not eaten anything common or unclean. And the voice spoke to him again the second time, What God has cleansed, you must not call common. This was done three times. And the object was taken up into heaven again. Now while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. So here we see... God has spoken to Cornelius and around about the same time he's also speaking to Peter. So Cornelius is a Gentile, Peter is a Jew. And the scripture says that Peter falls into a trance. I'm not sure what that means, if it's like a dream maybe or, or vision. But Peter sees something or God allows him to see something. And this takes place at the sixth hour, which is lunchtime. And the scripture points out that Peter was very hungry. So can you imagine, Peter is very hungry, he's up on the housetop. The smell of the food <laughs> is wafting up and you can hear the pots and pans down in the kitchen. And then what does God do? Give him a vision about food. Wow. You know, God often dovetails into our circumstances. Peter is hungry. He can smell the food. He can hear the pots and pans. God doesn't give him a vision about something unrelated. He knows he's hungry and he speaks to him and brings to him a vision with food in it. I find it remarkable how God speaks into our lives and circumstances. Has that ever happened to you? Yeah? Sometime a word, it could be from the preacher, it could be from a song, it could be from your daily devotion. How does God know? <laughs> how does God know? And how can God orchestrate that? How can God take something which are, is our daily routine and speak with specifics into our life. Well, that's the amazing, wonderful, gracious, magnificent God that we serve who can do above and beyond what we can imagine or think. So Peter's hungry and God brings his vision to him. A vision of uh, a sheet with clean and unclean animals. And he says to Peter, rise Peter. He knows he's hungry. Rise Peter, kill and eat. This sheet, the scripture tells us, has four it was bound in four corners, and the number four in biblical numerology represents the world, the four corners of the earth. So what Peter is seeing here in the vision is a white sheet with clean animals, which in this vision, there's, there's a deeper meaning to this, obviously. Peter is hungry, but the deeper meaning is the clean animals represents the Jews, and the unclean animals represents the Gentiles. And the Lord is saying to Peter, don't call common or unclean what I've, I'm calling clean. In other words, Peter's view, and we know this, we went over this last time, 
Peter's view and the view of the Jews was that the Gentiles were unclean. They had no association with them. And God's saying, these people, you may view them as unclean, but they are worthy of receiving the message of the gospel. And don't call them unclean. Don't treat them as second-class citizens. Don't treat them like, in other words, you know, we just don't want, we don't care about them. We don't love them. God is stirring in Peter's heart and awakening in his, in his mind an awareness that God loves everybody. And the message is for everybody, whether they're from the same traditions as us, from the same place of birth, from the same social uh, stratus in society. God loves everybody. This was a big problem to Peter, but you know, this is also a problem for us. We may not not openly admit to it, but this is also and can be a problem for us. And I believe that God is transitioning this church. He's transitioning this church that we can be open, concerned, and have love for everybody, regardless of how they appear. We have to love and we have to be outreaching. So, at the instruction in this vision to rise Peter, kill and eat, Peter says, not so, Lord. And as the commentators say, that's an oxymoron. You can't say not so, Lord. (laughs) If he's Lord, then you say, yes, Lord. But you don't say, not so, Lord. Because Peter's saying, Lord, I've been a good Jew. You know, I've kept all these laws all my life. So you know I'm not going to eat these things which are unclean. But God says to him in verse 15, Do not call common what I have cleansed. And we see here Peter. Peter likes the number three. You notice this in Scripture? He learns in threes. So it was Peter that denied the Lord three times. And then Jesus had to cancel that out and restore him three times. Remember in John 21, it says, Peter, do you love me? Three times. And here again, we see God is going over this command in the vision three times to Peter. Three times. I wonder what number God deals with us with. (laughs) Often God has to go over things even more than three times with us, doesn't he? As I say sometimes, we hard ears. Oh, um, we are hard of hearing, I should say. (laughs) Sometimes we we, we do that, don't we? We're on that roundabout. We, We won't come off the exit, you know, we're just going round... And around, no wonder sometimes we have deja vu. Of course it's deja vu. (laughs) You've been around it ten times already. But this this is the truth, brethren. This is the reality. Often we don't bring forth immediate obedience. Often God has to take us around. And then sometimes we're wondering, God, what's going on? But we haven't followed the instruction of the Lord. The deeper significance of this is that God is about to just smash open the door, swing wide the door to the Gentiles to allow them to come into uh, the kingdom. And what what God is really saying here, um, and what we will see later, is that these Gentiles are going to come into the kingdom without being circumcised, without obeying all these religious laws, Peter, he can't compute this. So God is taking him on a, a, on a journey. And we'll see later at the end of the chapter what, what happens there. Amen. So I believe that as God is showing Peter this vision, what God is also saying to Peter and to us, that this cloth with all these animals, a mixture of animals, I think it's a picture of heaven. Revelation 19, that marriage supper of the Lamb, where there are going to be people from 
every tribe, every tongue, every nation sitting together in harmony, in peace and unity. I wonder if we can have that picture in our mind. Can I take a step further? I wonder if one day whoever's standing here preaching can perhaps see a glimpse of that in our church. How do you feel about that? <laughs> yeah. I think sometimes it helps you when you see. And that's why I think it's so important when our, our church as a city comes together. You know, when we have these, uh, whether it's uh, some kind of evangelistic witness or whatever it may be, I think that's why it's so important for us to be involved in that. What we see influences us. And if we're only just seeing one thing all the time, our minds can kind of get fixated with that and it's hard for us to really just see something else and believe God for something else. So it's, it's important for us to work together and see the bigger picture of God, what God wants to do both in this city of Wolverhampton and indeed in our country. Because when we get to heaven, that's what it's going to be like. So we might as well get used to that and begin to see that. Didn't Paul say that, you know, that there is no Jew or Gentile. All is one in Christ. Moving on to verse 19. It says, while Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, behold, three men are seeking you. So these men are right on cue. As he's Coming out of his vision and thinking about it, the men are literally knocking at Simon's door. And the Lord says, Arise therefore, go, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Then Peter went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am he you seek. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius, the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by the holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. Then he invited them in and lodged them. And on the next day, Peter went away with them and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. Amen. I want us to notice here in verse 19 that Peter is thinking. God brings a vision to Peter, but Peter is, 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 is processing this, isn't it? He's reasoning, he's thinking about the, the vision. So between Peter reaching the right conclusion in regards what to do, there's some thinking going on. And God, as I said before, speaks to Peter three times about this. So he's helping Peter through this thinking process. Peter's not quite getting it. He comes back, he speaks to him again. And he comes back a third time and he speaks to him again. And you know, that's the way that God deals with us by his, his spirit. Even in Isaiah 1.18, God says, Come, let us reason. Let us reason together. When God speaks to us, our whole being is involved in obeying God. It's not just, you know, a, a, a spirit thing. Our mind must be engaged in thinking through what is God saying to me. That, that's healthy. I mean, how, how many of you heard about that situation in Jamaica that took place um, just a few weeks ago? Yeah, a, a cult where people were killed. And then there was an interview one of the chaps who escaped and he was asked, well, you know, how did you fall for this? And he just wasn't thinking, was he? He was just receiving everything that was being said and came under the spell and the power. And we, we've heard of Jim Jones and other, uh, you know, was it the Waco crisis years ago? So what I'm saying to us, Bridget, that we must think so even when I'm up here preaching, 
if you call this preaching, teaching them. <laughs> Even when I'm up here sharing the word of God or whoever's preaching, you must think about what I'm saying. And be like the Bereans in Acts 8, 17. What did they do? They went back and they checked the scripture to see whether what the apostles or whoever was preaching, did it line up with the word of God? Sometimes we can go off on one, you know, and we can be led by dreams and visions. And there's nothing wrong with that. God definitely speaks to us in those ways. But, you know, the measuring stick is the word of God. I don't care how powerful that vision is to you, how real it is. It could be three-dimensional virtual. (laughs) You could feel the wind and the rain and the breeze and the sun. If it doesn't measure up (laughs) to the word of God. That's how people get deceived. So I'm saying, let's be like the Bereans. When the word of God comes forth, engage your mind. Think through it. Search the scriptures to see whether what you are being told is true. And we all have a responsibility. I, I try my very best when I'm sharing the word. I try with the knowledge and understanding I have to do the best to share the truth. But I'm human. Yeah? And my biases and so on always comes into what I share. So sometimes we all have to sift out and go back to the word of God. So we don't want like that incident that take place, that took place. We don't want that to happen to any of us, do we? So we have to, like Peter, think through what God is saying to us. And we see that these people arrive right on time here. Reading from verse 24. And the following day, they entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them, and he had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up. I myself am also a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many who had come together. And he said to them, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or to go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore, I came without objection as soon as I sent, I was sent for. I asked then that for what reason have you sent me? So Cornelius said, four days ago, I was fasting until this hour. And at the ninth hour, I prayed in my house. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, Your prayer has been heard and your arms are remembered in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. When he comes, he will speak to you. So I sent you immediately and you have done well to come. Now therefore, we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. Amen. I just want to point out here this, the humility of this man, Cornelius. Remember, we said he's a military leader. He has responsibility for special forces, but he's a devout man who's seeking God. And then here comes Peter, who's a fisherman. You know, uh, Peter is not someone who's uh, a theologian or someone who of high ranking or position is a fisherman, but God is using him still in extraordinary ways. And as Peter comes into this place where Cornelius is gathered, not just by himself, but he invites friends and relatives, and maybe even some of the soldiers are there. The scripture says that this 
military leader falls down in the presence of his friends and family before Peter. Wow, what a a public display of humility. And the scripture says that God gives grace to the humble. 1 Peter 5, 5. Someone of position, someone of power and authority, but yet he is humble. He's teachable. He's not doing the, the correct thing, but still is displaying humility. Notice too, the humility in Peter. Because Peter could have really just lapped that up, you know. And just say, yeah, just, just shine them a bit more like, you know, you know, you know what I mean? Just stay down there a bit more. But Peter acknowledged, look, I'm just a man. Just like you. Get up. So there's, there's, there's lessons in humility here, isn't there? On both sides. Cornelius is, is displaying humility, but so likewise is Peter. And God's doing a work, a deep work in Peter's heart. Because maybe before this, I don't know how Peter would have responded to this, but God is obviously doing a work in his heart. So let's learn those lessons of humility. And then what we see here is a confirmation of these two visions. And I remember some time ago when I spoke from Acts chapter 9, the conversion of Saul, that whenever God is going to bring two parties together, God speaks to both parties. God never just speaks to one person and then that person imposes this is what God says and you're feeling I'm not feeling that you know but this is what God says God told me God always speaks to both parties and I said last time that will save you a lot of heartache because God doesn't want to have a relationship through somebody else with you all right So he doesn't want me to get to know him through somebody else. He wants me to have a personal relationship with him. So then Peter goes on now to bring forth the word. Verse 34. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. But in every nation... Whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. He's Lord of all. Lord of the Jews. Lord of the Gentiles. Wow. What a statement by Peter. He is, Jesus Christ is Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed through all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus Christ of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he, who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. Verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished as many as came with Peter because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Wow. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid that these should not be baptized? 
even though they haven't been circumcised, even though they're not eating kosher food, can anyone forbid that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. Wow. What is going on here is absolutely magnificent. What we are reading and seeing in scripture is the door being flung open to the likes of us, the Gentiles, to receive the message of the gospel. And I want us to just note here, again, Peter, what does he do? He preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I thought about this. Peter had just healed a man, Aeneas, who was sick. Peter had just raised up Dorcas from death. And I thought, if that was me, I probably I would give my testimony first and say, you know, I just did in Joppa. This woman was dead and, you know, I went and I prayed for her. And yes, I think I probably would have done that. Would you? If we had just prayed for someone and they'd just been raised from the dead, do you think you would have shared your testimony first? You probably would have. Be honest. Speak the truth. <laughs> and as I say, and shame the devil. <laughs> but I, I tell you, I am astounded by this. Peter preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as I look through the book of Acts, you know what I see? The book of Acts is not about the apostles. The book of Acts is not even about the Holy Spirit. The book of Acts is not about signs and wonders and miracles. The book of Acts, if you study it carefully, is about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every single time the apostles had the opportunity to, to preach, whether it be in a synagogue or in a city or in a prison, every single time they preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's not to say that the Holy Spirit isn't moving and doing mighty and powerful things. Of course he is. Yes. But what we have to remember, brethren, is that the Holy Spirit has been sent by God so that we are witnesses of Jesus Christ. You know, sometimes we forget that. And we think that the Holy Spirit has, has been sent so we can have goose pimples. We think the Holy Spirit has come so we can run around church. And we can have a fantastic time in here. Well, that's, that's, that's good. I'm, I'm not saying you should do that. But let's not forget the purpose of God sending the Holy Spirit is for us to preach Hallelujah. the gospel of Jesus Christ. Glory. What did Jesus say? The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. And he's anointed me to what? What was the first thing that Jesus said? He has anointed me to preach. And then as we preach, signs and wonders follow us. And I want us to really get this today. Because sometimes I think we've just gone off on some tangents. The filling of the Holy Spirit, the anointing of, of the Holy Spirit, all of that is to, so that we are effective witnesses. And Peter doesn't miss it here. He doesn't go off in the flesh. Peter stays right on track. God flings open these doors for him to, to go into the Gentile territory. There are hearts here who are hungry. He doesn't seek to build up his own reputation or anything. He gets straight to the point. And he preaches Jesus Christ and him crucified. Amen. And I also want us to notice here that this is the fifth time in the book of Acts that um, we read of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on believers. And I want us to know that on all six occasions, it's different. So in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, they are sitting down. Yes. Have you noticed that? Yes. 
They were sitting down. Acts chapter 4, they were undergoing persecution. And they were praying for boldness. And the scripture says they were all filled. Acts chapter 8, the apostles come from Jerusalem down to Samaria. And they lay hands on people. And they receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 9, God uses a non-apostle to come and lay hands on Paul or Saul of Tarsus. And he received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And in this case, in chapter 10, it's in the middle of the sermon. Alter Carl, don't call yet, you know. Preachers still preaching. And these are Gentile people as well. Holy Spirit come down and they receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then in Acts chapter 13, when Paul and Barnabas are driven out of the city and they shake the dust off their feet, the scripture said they were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. The point I want to make is you can't box in the Holy Spirit. And for those who are seeking the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You know, sometimes me sharing my experience or someone else sharing the experience, sometimes it can be helpful, sometimes it can be a hindrance. You cannot box in the Holy Spirit. We see six different ways that the Spirit fell upon believers and they received the baptism here. You know, because I can come up here and say, you know, when I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, well, I fasted on Thursday. I was given 50 pounds a week to the church. And I was reading through the book of Zephaniah. And then you go, ah. So I'm going to start fasting on Thursday. And I need to start giving 50 pounds a week to the church. And although I don't even know where the book of Zephaniah is in the Old Testament, but I better find it. No. God, you can't, you can't box in the Holy Spirit. You can't even dictate how you're going to receive that baptism of the Holy Spirit. I was just about to share my experience, but it might not be helpful for you. <laughs> so I won't bother. But the Holy Spirit and the filling and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is for us to be witnesses. There's only one prerequisite. Our declaration that says, say, our faith says, subsequent to a clean heart. There's only one prerequisite to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and that is to have desire. John seven thirty seven and 38. Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, or rivers of life giving water. And then Matthew 5, 6 says, Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And what is the evidence that one has uh, received the, 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 the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Well, I would say the evidence of receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit is that one has an even deeper hunger for Jesus Christ. Because why has the Spirit come? The Holy Spirit has come to teach us, direct us, and point us to Jesus. So that's the evidence of the Holy Spirit moving. The Holy Spirit hasn't come to magnify himself. He has come to lift up and magnify Jesus. So if we have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that evidence is that there should be a deeper hunger for Jesus Christ. It's not an end in itself. Like, you know, yes, I've received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, tick that off now. So, you know, it's not like that. that in, in some respects, it's the start of a deeper uh, walk and a closer walk with Jesus. Amen. Amen. Wrapping up now, verse 43. I just want to just focus on this as we close. Acts 10, 43. It says there, whoever believes in him, that's Jesus, will receive remission of sins. Believes means, believe means to entrust him. Whoever entrusts Jesus Christ, whoever sees Jesus Christ as a solution to your sin problem. In other words, if you trust him, he will take care of your sin problem. And that's your sin past, your sin present, and your sin future. 
If you trust Jesus, he will take care of that sin problem. And you will receive remission or forgiveness. And that word remission means to be delivered, to be liberated, to be freed from something. If you trust Jesus Christ, you will be delivered, liberated, and freed from sin. You see, because we're all born with what we could look at like a, a, a cancer of sin. It's embedded in us, all born in sin, aren't we? Shaping in iniquity. And the only thing that can deal with that sin, we can't deal with that sin on our own or by doing good works. The only thing that can deal with that sin is the blood of Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross as we trust Jesus to deliver us from our sins, he will. And I want to say maybe today someone wants to take that step of faith towards Jesus. When we do that, it's like, you know, we all use computers these days. It's like our sin is on a hard drive and God takes that sin and moves it into the recycle bin. But he don't just leave it in the recycle bin. He empties the recycle bin. Gone. As far as the east is from the west, he remembers our sin no more. I don't want us ever to become blasé or numb to the fact of what God has done for us when we confess our sins to him and he removed our sins. We should never ever get bored of that. Never ever get bored of thinking where God has brought us from. You know, sometimes we're looking for excitement should never get bored. This is something to be excited about. If we should be running around this church and jumping and doing somersaults, it's when we think of where we've come from, born in sin, condemned to death, and a holy righteous God leaves his throne in glory, lays aside all of that, comes and suffers at the hands of those he created spat on, hit in his face, persecuted, called a sinner, condemned to death on a cross, murdered in broad daylight. The creator, looking at his creator, abusing him, but yet as a, as a sheep before shearer, kept his mouth closed. Because there's a bigger purpose. And he went through all of that. that that's exciting. Can, can somebody get excited about that in this house? Somebody give God glory. glory. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I'll tell you something. This thrills my heart. And I think that God, through Jesus Christ, would ex- exchange my sin. For his righteousness. That I can have eternal life with him forever. Wow. Glory be to God. Lord help us never to forget. Let us not just become normal. Inoculated to this fact. That you have washed our sins away. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Glory be to God. And what an incredible privilege that we have as the blood washed to share this message. You know, really, when you think about it, we shouldn't need any motivation to share our testimony. We shouldn't, because of what's happening in our lives, we shouldn't need anybody to crank us up and We should be so excited about what God has done in our lives. We should never, ever forget. Let this be our motivation to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What an incredible privilege to share the good news 
We're not sharing about New Testament Church of God. We're not sharing about rules and regulations. We're sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want to say to you that our testimony is something that keeps us alive. Did you know that? All of us should be able to share our testimony in three to four minutes. If you can't do that, perhaps we need to, we need to practice that, you know. We should all be able to share our testimony in three minutes, because maybe that's all you will get. You won't have time to sit down and explain, and you might just get two minutes. So we all should be able to share a, a short testimony. Where I was, how I met Jesus, and the change that has made in my life. And who can argue with that? We can argue about how you get baptized. Forwards, backwards to decide what type of bread you have for communion. What type of wine? Do we drink out of one cup? Do we drink out of many cups? We can argue about all those things till the cows come home. But nobody can argue about your testimony. I once was lost in sin. I met Jesus. And now my life has been transformed. Who can argue with that? That's why our testimonies are so powerful. And when we share our testimony, it keeps the life of the Holy Spirit flowing through us. You ain't got time to get bored. It keeps you motivated. Keeps your purpose alive. Because whatever you do in life, your career, whatever you do, your purpose is to share the gospel through whatever means you, you do between leaving here today and coming back next Sunday. Amen. Share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Daniel 12, 3 says, Those who turn many to righteousness shall shine like the stars forever. Do you want to shine? You want to have a bright countenance? Share your testimony because that's how people will turn to faith. So I want to end by saying, if you feel like you're running low, you feel like your tank is on empty, you're reaching down into the dregs in your reserve tank, you feel a bit discouraged, you want to pick me up? Share your testimony this week. Share your testimony this week. And I am telling you, life will be flowing through, out of your belly. Out of your belly. Out of your belly will flow rivers of life-giving water. Now you tell me who can be down with life-giving water flowing through you. You can't. I'm challenging myself and I'm challenging all of us this week to share our testimony. Whether people look like they will receive it or not, whether they look like they can comprehend it or not, share your testimony. Three minutes. No long thing. No long thing. Three minutes. Just say, this is what I was. And you don't have to go into the gory details either. Just say, I was bad. I met Jesus and he has made the difference in my life. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together. Before we close, I want to give an opportunity to anyone in this sanctuary today or watching online You may be a good person, genuinely a good person. You may do lots of charitable deeds. You may even pray. You may even give donations to the church and to other good causes. But you're not saved. We're not saved by the deeds that we do, by the good works that we do. 
We are only saved by grace by placing our faith in the person and works of Jesus Christ. Apart from that, we are lost. If you're here today, and you're wondering, am, am I saved? I, you know, I come to church every week. That doesn't save you. I listen to worship music at home. That doesn't save you. Now and then I give an offering. That doesn't save you. <laughs> Only by grace and putting your faith and, and trust, total reliance for your salvation in the person and works of Jesus Christ. If you haven't taken that step, today I want to invite you to take that step. The good that we do, yes, great, fantastic. Keep doing good. But if you want to be saved, if you want to spend eternity with Jesus, if you want your soul to be secured when we cross the eternal divide, you have to make a decision to surrender to Jesus Christ today. Will you do that? Will you do that today? If you're here, perhaps you want to indicate by putting your, raising your hand. I have a welcome opportunity to pray for you. Thank you, my sister. Anybody else? We cannot save ourselves. There's only one Savior. His name is Jesus Christ, the righteous, the risen Lord and Savior. Does anybody else want to place their total trust and confidence in Jesus Christ today? This is what it's all about.